Wow. Do you know pain? That's not a terribly pleasant question to ponder. The simple answer for most of us is yes or no, but that's not where our mind stops. If I gave you a moment and said, do you know pain? Where does your mind go? To pain that's been inflicted on you, we're typically not just thinking of the pain or the fiery trial that causes us to tamp down a shout, yes, to answer the question. We are ready sometimes in our own flesh, I'm afraid, to compare our pain with the pain of others, to show ourselves superior in the injured department. I don't doubt that there are stories, in fact, I know of some stories and some accounts in the room that would stop many of us in our tracks. But the reality is all of us have experienced pain, significant and at times traumatic even pain in our lives. And it can be difficult to recover from that. We can be accused of playing the part of the victim while we're just trying to work through the fact that we've been injured. How about this? Have you caused pain? It's equally unpleasant. I didn't go to uh, How to Build a Church 101 to start with nice, fluffy questions for you this morning. Sorry. But have you caused pain? We, we typically diminish the pain that we cause and magnify the pain that we've experienced that others have caused us. We judge ourselves by our intentions. Yeah, I've caused pain, but I didn't mean to. I, I didn't mean to do that. And yet when somebody hands you that line, I'm so sorry I hurt you, I didn't mean to, we go back with them, but yeah, but you hurt me deeply. And I'm not minimizing that at all. I'm just saying it's interesting, the standard that we have. I want to remind you of a reality that you will not hear in your daily news feed, and you will not hear if you are dialed into the zeitgeist of this world and culture, but we are all sinners we have all caused pain as a result of our sin, and we've all been on the receiving end of pain because of our sin and the sin of others. The reading this morning, thank you again, Brother Mark, has already been a bit heavy. It doesn't really go up from here with Joel 1 and 2. I just want to tell you. Um, you know the phrase we all like to quote, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We like short nights and quick mornings to arrive and long, wonderful mornings. It won't be a quick night this morning, sorry. Um, but I've got to let the text speak for itself. It's okay for us to linger a bit with pain. The Old Testament prophets, especially the minor ones, have a reputation. We were talking about that a little bit before service. Uh, we're going to see the pain and the cost of sin on Israel long before Jesus Christ came. Spoiler alert, it's still painful and costs more than you and I can afford today. But over the next four weeks, as we unpack the prophet Joel, I, I want to tell you we're going to talk about this thought of returning to God. That's Joel's cry to the people there. Now, when we talk about prophets, let me just unpack this for a moment. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I want to speak to all ages and everybody, whether you're new to the faith or you're a seasoned warrior of the cross. 
Prophets were not originators of new teaching, but rather were called to challenge the commitment of the people of God to the covenantal requirements of the Mosaic law. So essentially, Moses, remember we talked about it in Deuteronomy not long ago, obey the Lord and find favor with God, disobey the Lord and watch the wrath of God be poured out on us, God's chosen covenant people. We see this play out. That's what Joel doing. Joel is doing here. He's acting as a covenant enforcer. While the ministry of earlier prophets such as Elijah and Elisha were mostly oral and were recorded afterwards, Joel begins this minor prophet stand and other major prophets are turning the corner of writing and proclaiming. So now these prophets are writing and proclaiming what they're doing. No minor prophet stands alone. Let me just encourage you with that. Why would I say that? Do any of you have the dip theory of Bible study? You wake up in the morning and you go, Oh Lord, I need a word from you. Right? You drop a finger and you land on some minor prophet with some obscure text like we see this morning about locusts and all this devouring and woes and woes. And you think, that's not for me, Lord. Let me find another word. Right? Well, no prophet, no minor prophet would stand alone. You have to read them in the context of the other prophets. And I'll do my part, Lord willing, to give you the context this morning. But here's my prayer for you over the next four weeks that we spend together. Read this. Read the whole book of Joel. Each week. It's only four chapters. I mean, I could have told you to read, you know, all of Psalms. But read the whole book of Joel. Each week. Spend some time with it. Work through it. Take your study Bibles that you have, the resources that you have to you, and do some digging. And see what you find out. This is for you to study. Little is known about our author except that he's the son of Pethuel. That's it. His name means Yahweh is God. And it's actually pronounced, you ready? Yoel. But I'm not going to be pretentious and say the whole study is Yoel because everybody's called it Joel. We uh, went to Israel a few years ago. Our tour guide's name was Hananiah. Now, I'm saying that to you, Hananiah. Think of the way you would spell that. Well, you'd spell it like Hananiah in Scripture. I see another preacher or two in the room this morning, and I would say, I came, pulled Hananiah to the side, and I'm like, hey, is, is that the way you pronounce your name? Um, or are they, is that the way it's supposed to be pronounced? And he said, you've never heard it said that way. I said, no, I thought it was Hananiah. He said, that's the way American preachers say it. He said, but they say it with such authority, we try not to correct them. Um, But I don't want to say Yoel the whole time because somebody will slap me after church, and I don't want to do that. The date that this book was written is unclear, but our best biblical scholars put it somewhere between the 9th and 6th century B.C., Its message, though, is still valid because it's a word from the Lord for his people. So there's some encouragement here. We'll hunt for it this morning, but there is some encouragement here from the Lord. We're reminded, even in today's passage, that our God is all-powerful and he can control whatever he wants, whenever he wants, even insects, to bring about his purpose for his glory. We're also forced to deal with the very unpopular, and dare I borrow a phrase, inconvenient truth that sin brings about the judgment of God. Sin is rebellion against God and it brings about divine judgment. There's a direct connection between sin and its consequences. Joel's minor prophet status in no way diminishes the importance or the magnitude or the seriousness of the word of the Lord through him. He's reminding us that we are held accountable. Here's the way we'll look at the book of Joel then we'll dive into the text this morning. 
four headers in Joel. These are in your notes, by the way, if you're following away, uh, along on the uh, church app or on YouVersion. Uh, the first today, what a title, right? Sin's Painful Price. Sin's Painful Price. I'm going to attempt, Lord being my help, to go from verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse 17 of chapter 2. Don't worry, we want to we won't explode every single word of every single verse. The second message will be healing and wholeness from God. So if you can endure today, <laughs> come back next week. Healing and wholeness from God. Then we pick up the last part of chapter 2 and the most of 3, the day of the Lord. And finally, hope for God's people. Hope for God's people. Join me in prayer before we dive into these moments together. Our Lord and our God, we love easy things. I do. I love easy things and convenient things and turnkey things where I don't have to engage a whole lot of energy and effort. I'm, I'm just prone to that. I, I prefer that sometimes. This morning, the text will demand our attention and our sensitivity to your spirit. Make the book live, Lord, in us this morning. Help it to come alive in a way that transforms us and conforms us into the image of Jesus. We ask these things in your name and one final request, Lord. May this morning, awkward prayer requests at an American church in July of 2020, but may this morning we sense the weight and the heaviness of sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Look back at verses 1 through 3. Now, you're going to need your Bibles open. If you don't have one with you, grab a pew Bible. I'm, I'm just going to tell you it's going to be easier for you to have a Bible open this morning and to move with me through the text. I'm going to bring some things out. It's helpful if you've got the text there to reference. Joel begins his message essentially with addressing this locust plague that's, that's come along. And his message might be summarized as follows. Hey, what you've seen in the locusts, this is part of the day of the Lord that you've heard the prophets foretell about. It's not the final day of the Lord. It's not begun with the Gentiles, those other nations, but it's begun with us. God's chosen people. We're not exempt from judgment. That's Joel's kind of judgment-y talk here as you look at it. The first header I would give you under this, verses 1 through 3, is this. Ready? This demands our attention. If you're taking notes, write that down. If you write in your Bibles, you can write in a pew Bible too. It would be great. Uh, just write down, if you can write legibly, that is. Uh, write down, this demands our attention. And I'm not, it's not going to be hard work for you to see the parallels to where we are right now. But this demands our attention. Look at verses 1 through 3. It's the word of the Lord, right? We've already settled that. It's important. He says, hear this, you elders. Listen up, leaders. Listen up, community leaders. Listen up, leaders in the homes. Listen up, leaders in our gatherings. Listen up, leaders everywhere, elders, those of you that are in charge and have influence. Listen up. Something's going on here. Has this ever happened before? Look at the magnitude of what we're seeing. God's judgment is serious business. The consequences of sin is serious business. It demands our attention. This is not just business as usual. Listen up, you elders, and teach your children. See it in verse 3? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. That means a couple of things. Don't complicate the message so much that a child can't reproduce it. 
One of the hardest things that we do as Christians who've been saved for a long time, side note here with the gospel, is we make it so difficult to understand. And it is multifaceted and it's beautiful and stuff, but can I just remind you how you got in? You didn't need to know if you were pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, eh, millennial, whatever. You didn't know any of those words existed. You didn't know what this faction was and that faction was. All you knew was that the Bible was the Word of God presented with conviction that there was a God in heaven who made you to glorify Him, that your sin had separated you from Him, invited the wrath of God into your life, but Jesus Christ was the substitutionary sacrifice to stand in the gap and to bring you to God and God to you. And you were convicted of your sins. You felt the weight of your sins and you confessed your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus and now you have life. And then you learned things. You don't have to arrive at perfection and a full knowledge before you get there. That's ridiculous. That's not Bible. That's not how that works. Even though popular speakers would say that. That's just not how it works. So remember that. Don't complicate the gospel when you're presenting a lifeline to someone who's perishing. Right? You don't throw the life jacket out that needs to be assembled. Here are all the ingredients. I know you're drowning, but if you'll take that and weave it together. No, no, no. It's left over right. What are you doing? No, no. You just throw the life preserver and save them. Tell this to your children. Do our kids know what's going on? Now, at their age-appropriate level, of course. But do you take a moment to unpack what's going on in the world to your kids? Our kids won't have a biblical worldview if our kids aren't trained to have a biblical worldview. And it can't be accomplished one hour a week in Sunday school or youth gathering or whatever it is, fill in the blank. It is not drop off, raise my kids. And for those of you single adults in the room, it's like, yeah, you parents ought to get with it. Titus 2 puts all of us on the hook. It puts every one of us on the hook. Those of us that are older have a responsibility to pour our lives biblically into those who are younger. Tell your kids, this demands our attention. Now, that's the shortest point. You say, oh, we're going to move pretty quickly. Sorry. Nope. Second point. What do we tell them? Look at this. The devastation is everywhere. That's what we're going to notice in these next few verses. The devastation is everywhere. Listen up, leaders. Teach your children this demands our attention. God's judgment is serious business. Devastation is everywhere. Now let me give you a caution here that we're prone to do. We'll take something that's in the Bible and try to apply it to all things. Let me just tell you, we've got to be careful not to interpret every hardship and every trial as discipline from the Lord. That's not what this message is this morning. That's the mistake of the Pharisees in John 9. But we need not forget that God may chastise us because he knows what's best for the sake of our souls. You say, well, how do you know this one's the judgment of God? Because Joel told us it was. <laughs> so that's how I know. So if you come to me and unpack your situation and you say, is this the judgment of God? I say, I don't know. Here's what I know. We're all in a broken world. And we're all experiencing the consequences and the fallout of sin. We are all under, if you will, a measure of the judgment of God on this earth as sin does have consequences. We live in a broken world. So yes and no, I, you know, I don't, with your certain circumstance and situation, it's difficult to say, but I can say with authority, this was the judgment 
of God. All right, grab those Bibles, look at them. Let's, let's just kind of look through verses 4 through 12. Let's bring out some of this incredible things that they're seeing. You see the cutting locusts, the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the destroying locusts. Pastor Chad, are those four types of locusts? Possibly, yeah. There's a good camp that believes that's four type. Uh, uh, no, I think it's just one type of locust in four swarms. Okay. It doesn't diminish the text. It's still really, really bad. <laughs> Everything that the cutting locust left, this next wave came in and got, and then wave after came in and got. Total devastation. They destroyed all that society held precious and dear. Too dear, in fact, at times. Look at what they destroyed. Read on there. You see that the vineyards are gone, if you look in the subsequent verses. The wine is gone, the fig trees and the fruit trees, the grain, I'm going all the way through verse 12 with this, the wheat, the barley, all the things for enjoyment are gone. Can you imagine what it would be like to have lived through this? Now, imagine if I'd asked you that question last year. You'd be like, oh, that, ooh, that's hard to imagine. <laughs> I think we may can imagine it a little better now than we could a year ago. Our suffering doesn't compare to this, but recent days, I believe, have given us a glimpse of just how quickly a pandemic scare can affect supply lines in our modern society and squeeze many of us with more than just an inconvenience. Think of the way it's affecting the mental health, the emotional health, and the spiritual health of so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, not to mention those who live without hope. He gives some ways to respond here. Verse 5, to the drunkards. Well, that's pretty. I don't particularly care for that word. It's a Bible word, so I'll just leave it alone. To the drunkards. Wake up and weep, he says. Except for pointing out the insincerity of worship in chapter 2. Take a deep breath, us 2020, living in the freedom of Christ, church poke. Listen carefully. Drunkenness is the only sin that Joel actually names in his book. It's a serious sin that the prophets don't take lightly. They often condemn, Hosea did by name, Amos does. Perhaps the drunkards represent all the careless people in the land and those whose only interest was sinful pleasure. But a word of caution to the drunkards. Wake up and weep because everything that you held dear is gone. Everything you're living for the next drink, it's done. It's gone. To the farmers, verses 8 through 12. He says, despair and well. They were already upset. Imagine season to season, the locusts are, are taking whatever's produced and the drought keeps the soil from producing anything more. In verses 18 through 20 later, Joel includes the flocks and the herds and their pastures. The farmers were grieving like a woman whose fiance had just been killed. Can you imagine that kind of pain? That's the imagery he uses here. Like a virgin whose wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. That's how the farmers are weeping and wailing. Move to verse 13. So to the drunkards, he says, Get up, wake up and weep. To the farmers, despair and wail. And to the priests, he says, call for a fast. The worship gatherings were affected. 
The elements needed for worship were gone. They couldn't bring an animal to sacrifice because there weren't any healthy animals to bring. They were starving to death. They didn't have any grain. They didn't have any for the grain sacrifice, for a wave offering. Uh, there, there was no blood. There was no wine for a wine offering, for a drink offering. They had nothing to bring. The, the church had shut down, if you will. I'm using church just to give us a word picture there. They were affected. The priests were already mourning and lamenting, and he says, call for a fast. There's a call for repentance in the wake of what's going on around them. Can I tell you, church, in 2020, the proper response to God's judgment and to unexplained circumstances is always a contrite heart and spirit. And more times than not, it's for us to get on our face before a holy God and say, search me, try me, know me. Root out anything in me. I think we've dealt with that not too long ago as a church family. But have you dealt with that as a brother or sister, as a church goer? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will in no ways cast out. He will not despise. Humble yourselves, he says. I'm looking in verses 13 through 20 now. Sackcloth that they would put on. Most of us don't put on itchy things by design, maybe these masks, but other than that, most of us don't choose to put on something itchy against our skin, right? I love going shopping with my wife. We don't go many places often, and I don't know how this is going to change now, but back in the old days when we'd go shopping, Ashley would, she'd walk and she'd see something she'd like and she'd touch it. She wanted to feel it. She wanted to feel the material, any of y'all like that? You like to feel that material before you even, like you look at it, you're like, I'm going to feel that material. I don't know what we're going to touch now. But anyway, she feel the material. She wanted to see how it felt against her skin. I doubt very seriously if she'd gone up to a burlap bag that was unrefined that she'd rub it and go, ooh, I can't wait to get that on. No. <laughs> but that's what sackcloth was like. They would put this on as an outward humiliation to reflect an inward humility. Humble yourselves. Lament wail at the place where we normally sacrifice don't rest comfortably things aren't right at the house of god in addition to the annual fast that they were required to do the priest could call a fast anytime they want to and they're saying call a fast we will come together to gather lament and sit and weep well that sounds like a great way to build a church doesn't it Let's mark it. Let's do some flyers and put them out all over the county and say, come join us as we're going to come and cry. Well, I don't know. We, we may need a good cry now, but not about just how things aren't going our way, but about our own sin. Repentance, church family. I, again, I know you know this, but as a preacher, as a heritor, I've got to go here. Is a turning, a change of heart and mind over your attitude towards God and your own actions. It's turning away from sin and turning toward God. Accordingly, repentance involves more than just external confession of guilt and expression of regret. It's the inward change of a heart and mind that results in grieving over the wrong that we have committed and when we're grieved by the sins we do commit. A hating of the offense and an earnest desire for the mercy and forgiveness of God. Such repentance necessarily results in a changed life. And if that doesn't describe what you've gone through, I'm not sure that you've repented. 
It's not just an I'm sorry. It's not just a confession to agree with God. It's where you come to hate the things that God hates and love what God loves. The Bible says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Look at verse 15. He's unpacking all of this. It's remarkable. And then in the middle of this, he says, alas, for the day of the Lord is near. What? And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Wait, what? Hashtag, you ain't seen nothing yet. He resumes his assessment of the current damage. We'll come back to that day of the Lord. The food supply is affected. Hello? There's no joy or gladness at the house of the Lord. The ground is dry. The storehouses are empty. The cattle and sheep, the sacrificial animals are suffering like a fire devours all moisture. The brooks are even dried up. Wow! This is total devastation. We've not seen anything like this. Judah's going through it here. Let me get back to your pain for a minute. What you've experienced and what you've caused. My pain, your pain, our pain. I want you to imagine for just a moment that you are, take a deep breath, it's a stretch, apolitical. You have no ax to grind against a party and no case to make for another. Can you step above for just a moment? Can you see with your eyes that our nation even this global system is under a siege of darkness. The greed and malice and selfishness from the local to the global levels is disgusting. Can you see the corruption at every level that are destroying institutions and people and causes that were meant to love others as ourselves? We're in trouble and it's escalating. The all-out assault on anything holy that's fodder for daily activities. Darkness is being called light, and light is being cast out and maligned as darkness. The name of our God is a flippant expression of disgust and derision. The infanticide that has been plaguing our nation for too many years with abortion mills literally surrounded by churches. Racial disunity and prejudice are rampant in local churches that preach the image of God. Hirelings, charlatans, and false prophets have the most bandwidth in the so-called Christian airwaves. The American church continues to produce anemic, ignorant, adrenaline-junkied, biblically illiterate churchgoers that are opposed to Bible-loving, Jesus-contending, disciple-making disciples who advance the gospel. We've got people who've been attending church for years, occupying positions of authority and influence who refuse to give generously or sacrificially to the work of God. They are hoarders. The Bible calls them God robbers. Haughty eyes everywhere you look around. A lying tongue every time you turn the corner. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are quick to shed and run to evil. A false witness that breathes out lies every time you look around. And folks actively trying to sow discord in the church. The devastation of sin is everywhere. And we need to give our attention to the Lord. Like locust swarms, sin has impacted every facet of our society. Sin's painful price has a culmination, and Joel is one of the first prophets to call it what's coming. 
Third header this morning, final note, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Now first, this is used to describe a day of judgment for Israel. This may have been a surprise because they were waiting on a Messiah. What? More judgment? Second, it's used to refer to a special visitation from God's saving power, praise God, on behalf of His people. It's also used here referring to an imminent day of deliverance and such day in the distant future. There is a day of the Lord coming that Joel is describing here that will far outweigh what they've already gone through. Chapter 2, where I'm going to move very quickly through this, okay? Very quickly. Chapter 2, get your Bibles open and let's look. Let me give you some summaries of what you're looking at. Verse 2, after they've blown the trumpet, why? Because darkness and gloom and clouds are coming, like blackness spread across the mountains. There's never been anything like them before. They, there won't be after them. Verse 3, fire goes before, whatever this is, and behind it, it leaves desolation in its wake. Verse 4, they look and run like horses with chariots. Verses 5 and 7, they're like a powerful army of warriors and soldiers. Verse 6, everyone who sees them grows pale. Verses 7 and 8, like a well-disciplined military unit. Look, nothing gets in their way. They scale walls. They burst through weapons. They leap over walls. Verse 9, climb into houses. Bust through windows like a thief. Verse 10, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. You can't see the sun, the moon, or the stars. Wow. What in the world is Joel talking about? Three possibilities here. Bible teacher hat on, okay? Is this another locust invasion? Could be, yeah. It, it, it could be. The language here in English and Hebrew says that they are like an army and like an invading force. This could be like, hey, we just lost everything with this locust invasion. Wave two is coming. Boy, I, you know, sorry to say wave two. That made my heart skip a little bit, right? July of 2020, but... Man, it could be that, and that is fine. That doesn't, that's not problematic for the text. It's not problematic for eschatology. It, it, is this an invading army? Is this the Assyrians coming soon or something like that? You know, it could be. It's probably not. Most Bible scholars don't, don't kind of hold on to that. It's not an immediate invading army in their future. Is this imagery for the final day of the Lord? It could be. The cosmic imagery in verse 10 would make us think that with the sun. It's the same kind of language that's used in Revelation with the sun going black and dark. Here's the deal. Can you, can you bear with me for just a minute? Whichever one it is, y'all, let me just get real, it, it ain't good. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be too trite about that, but it's bad. They thought it was bad. It's worse. Let me remind you, all of this is a consequence of sin. This is not God up in heaven thinking, how am I going to make life miserable for these people that I love that have obeyed me? No, this is God saying, I told you, obey me and walk in newness of life. Disobey me and run after other gods and you will pay the consequence for your actions. God's holiness demands consequences for sin. We may not be able to pin down with absolute authority whether this is locusts or an apocalyptic end times imagery, but the fact remains Judah had seen a lot, but there was more coming. Remember last week we quoted that verse from Deuteronomy 28. If you don't obey the voice of the Lord, be careful, all these curses shall come upon you. Locusts are devastating, but they're not the worst thing. AIDS 
is devastating, but it's not the worst thing. Coronavirus is devastating, but it's not the worst thing. Economic and global shutdown is devastating, but it is not the worst thing. Joel 2, 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. Who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The Lord speaks. Who can withstand the terrible day of the Lord? With all the virtue signaling that's going on at every turn in our own day, with all the deafening calls from the militant theological liberals, these are people who deny the very authority of Scripture, with the political extremists all screaming at us to get on the right side of history, which is based on their truth, by the way. I have a message for you, political extremists. I've got a message for you, theological liberals. I've got a message for you, virtue-signaling, spineless men and women. I would rather be on the right side of God when it all comes down to it than to stand politically correct. Joel is calling for the people of God to come back to God. Sit with me under the preaching of Joel for just a moment in the wake of all of this devastation and take a moment and read verses 12 through 17 with me. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room in the bride or chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord weep. And say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Church, be so moved by the devastation that we see. Be so focused with our attention that our whole family takes note with us that we are taking these things serious. Because there is a famine in the land. The famine and abject poverty in the land when we think we're wealthy. We say we're rich, we've prospered, we need nothing, not realizing that we are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Revelations 3 goes on to say, but those whom I love, I reprove and discipline and so be zealous and repent. And Jesus stands at the door of his church and knocks and says, will you open up? How do we open up? We repent I'll come to him and eat with him and him with me. Two chapters from 1-1 to 2-17. I've covered a lot of ground this morning. It's been lamenting and woes and locusts and days of the Lord and weeping and repenting and all that. I didn't, there's no make you feel good angle of this, by the way. I wonder if we would get brokenhearted over sin. If we would get broken over what we see around us, maybe we could kneel with the Puritans with hearts broken and cry out, convince me, O Lord, that I cannot be my own God and make myself happy. I cannot be my own Christ and restore my joy. I cannot be my own spirit and teach and guide and rule myself. 
Take away my roving eye, curious ear, greedy appetite, lustful heart. Show me that none of these things can heal a wounded conscience, can support a tottering frame, uphold a departing spirit. Lord, take me to the cross and leave me there. You got pain? Cause pain? Only God can meet you at the point of that need. You may come to Jesus and still have pain. In fact, I can almost guarantee it. But if you come to Jesus, he can cleanse and make you new. Our sin caused great devastation. Our sin sent Jesus Christ to a cross. There he was lifted up to die. There upon that cross, the sins of everyone who would believe in him were transferred to him. The great exchange of the cross, the worst about us laid upon him. The best about him laid upon us. Sin brings pain. Pain is its offspring. It demands our attention. There's destruction everywhere because of sin. We live in a broken and fallen world. The day of the Lord is coming. And I wonder what that does for you. Does that excite you with joy? Or does it cause you great fear? How would you respond if Joel was preaching to you this morning? Would you look up from your cultural intoxication and try to see things biblically? Would you disciple the next generation whether you've got kids or not? Would you be sensitive to your own sin, quick to repent? I'm keenly aware that some of you even now have not come to Jesus yet. I pray that you would today. Your worst can be laid upon him and his best laid upon you for the glory of the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, it's difficult to do justice to a text like this. It takes some more time and personal reflection from the hearer. It will take more time and personal reflection from me for application in my own life. I'm grateful that you have paid the price for our sin on the cross that you rose again on the third day in newness of life, that we can have life abundant and full of joy because of who you are. But Lord, as we look around, I do pray that we would juxtapose that joy that's full of glory, but have hearts broken with the things that break your heart. Fill us with your spirit, which means you will lead us with compassion to those who are perishing. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen.